Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr, and welcome back to Pennsylvania, Scott. Thank you. I was in Texas, the great, great state of Texas. Right. I lived there for three years. I always was convinced that the Texas flag would be just about a quarter inch higher than the American flag down there. That's kind of how they, they think a little bit. <laughs> I didn't take notice to any flags. No flags? Like, I mean, I, well, there were there, but I wasn't really paying they well, significant attention to... The decorum. Right. And we are now in the midst of Lent. Uh, and so I hope that all of you are having a meaningful uh, pilgrimage towards the cross and to Jerusalem. And whether you're taking something on or giving something up, I, uh, I wish you good days for your soul. Yeah. And we have not posted. I have to post it. When I, I'll post it after I post this. And we did a dialogue sermon. We did. Which is really like a version of the podcast, homiletically. Right. <laughs> it was. We, uh, Scott, uh, was at uh, my church, and we did uh, Nash Wednesday service together. It was very, it was great. It was really fun. So it was our first time, and we probably have been dismissive of such exercises homiletically. <laughs> no, not probably. Uh, I think somewhere in the record, I have spoken badly about dialogue sermons. So there you go. It's I've never. Done, I've done. I've done a few, but I. It, uh, but it was. Uh, I, I realize it's kind of what we do. For the last hundred plus episodes, yeah, yeah it's it's interesting. It's not. It felt it, it felt very simple. It, felt very, it, felt, it didn't feel very different. Yeah, yeah. At least half the people liked what we were doing. Like, yeah, and it was it was yeah. uh, it was it was good. I mean, yeah. people, it was nice. Uh, it was a nice service in general. So yeah, yeah. So um, are we going to jump into our subject, or should we let's, talk, talk well, about what the world? Is? It's like the weekend update. I mean, this is, uh, you know. Bill, I've come with, up with some uh, evidence that you've bugged my house. Bad, sick guy you are, Bill. You're a sick, bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, that this is a fascinating. We in the FBI had caused to wiretap your house. Exactly. I mean, it, this is one of those things that like, so, you know, you wonder like, is it like, is it just like kind of flippant, weird? Is it to, to is this like a really good way of controlling the narrative in the sense of you have a sessions thing where you know which you know again like the sessions thing if he had just disclosed it earlier it probably wouldn't but would have blown over in a day now it sort of looks like a thing right and is it sort of like well what are they going to do to me anyway if i say this since I mean, i'm the president you know what could I, i'm just going to say this and then of course if you looked at the sunday you know news cycle shows there was more talk about this allegation than there was about the Sessions thing. Right, right. I, I don't think it was that thought out. I mean, it was interesting. Uh, Joe Scarborough has made the observation that Trump's craziest tweets happen either late Friday night or, or Saturday. Saturday morning. So there's no one watching him 
during those times, or maybe he's coming down from the drugs. I don't know. But um, he said, I was reading something today where he is an older interview with Megan Kelly. He's like, what, what do you, what's your favorite book uh, outside of Art of the Deal? Uh, I guess All Quiet on the Western Front. <laughs> and he's like, well, what's the last book you read? Like, you know, oh, I don't read my, I don't have time. I'm watching you all the time. I'm right. so busy. Well, that's the funny thing. I'm so busy. I'm watching cable news. Yeah. I think he, I think at I watch a lot of cable news. Yeah, I, I think – I mean he um, – I mean again, we uh, – although I, I did read an article in psychology today. I think the gloves are coming off in the psychological uh, community. They said there have been some criticism whether or not to actually diagnose him, what is painfully obvious that he that he is. But uh, yeah, I, it seems to me he's a pretty isolated, lonely guy in a lot of ways and I, it just – this is weird stuff. But, um, you know, whether rather than give him sympathy, it's unprecedented to accuse – the previous president, someone who you actually should talk to for some advice uh, of a felony. Bill Clinton talked to Nixon, for, for God's sake, for advice. <laughs> so burning burning this bridge makes absolutely no, no sense. Yeah, when yeah. Clinton did, 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 the, did the eulogy at Nixon's funeral and said – when he lost Nixon, it was like losing his mother again. Well, like, and, and like in, and George, they talked like every day. And George Bush Senior is like a surrogate father for him. Oh yeah. Too. So I mean, again, it's just absurdity. Uh, you know, the President of the United States is a pathological liar, and uh, he gets away with it. And it's 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 un it's unfortunate. Unfortunate. That's not strong enough. It's very problematic. And the fact that uh, I I don't know what what is the thing that's going to what what is the bridge too far. Uh, you know, probably another book he didn't read, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's it's just it boggles the mind, and uh, yeah. I, I, I see what my my fears. I have a number of fears, but one of them is you're going if you don't have if the White House and the intelligence groups are not talking or if there's not trust, we're going to miss something really big that's going to create tragic consequences because you need you need. Uh, to be finding out what's going on in the world, you need to be able to trust your intelligence sources, and it's just it's just boggles the mind that this is going on. In other news, it's come out that recently. I mean, this tells you where the things are with the Russians and the Russian economy. A recent event at the Russian embassy, they were serving Kirkland vodka, which is Costco's yeah. <laughs> brand. So. Well, you think James Bond would ever drink a Costco martini, yeah, shaking so. us? He'd walk right out. Yeah. I mean, he can't. If you can't have James Bond at your embassy, how are you going to be an international player? I mean, that that tells you maybe the Russians aren't as big a threat as we thought. If they're drinking, if they're if if they're serving Kirkland to diplomats, they're not going to get any influence. That's, that's hilarious. You know, it's it's funny. I just uh, as I was uh, on my way in, I was reading that uh, the guy that uh, Trump's lawyer had been negotiating the Ukrainian businessman that they've been talking about maybe coming up with a peace deal. You know, if it was totally inappropriate for them to be doing well, he he's dead now. He he died unexpectedly. The UN, the Russia's UN ambassador died unexpectedly. If you're listening, Leslie Graham, please have people taste your food before you eat it. You mean Lindsay? What I say, Leslie. Leslie, Lindsay, Lindsay Lindsay Graham, the the senior senator from South Carolina. Lindsey Graham, please have someone taste your food for you. Absolutely. We need you on the wall. We need you on the wall. Well, on to other things. Yes. We are going to talk for several episodes about love. Yeah, and a number of things that have uh, stirred this on or stirred this within our hearts, Uh, um, various things for me. But uh, from an intellectual, spiritual standpoint, 
Uh, I've been reading Tomas Hollick's new book that's about love. Which I just started reading on your recommendation. Yeah, and I want to kick off today's discussion with a quote. It's uh, the book's called "I Want You to Be on God on the God of Love." I can't help thinking that God doesn't particularly care whether we believe in Him or not. What really does matter to me, to him, or what really does matter to Him, however, is whether we love Him. Or more precisely, He doesn't care about our faith in the sense that the term is often used, namely that to believe in God is to be convinced of God's existence. I don't think our salvation depends on religious opinions, notions, and convictions. So it's an interesting idea that he explores in this book, among others, that love, he says, is the priority over faith. So what do you make of that? Do you think love is prior to faith? Because particularly, you know, you and I go back and forth on this, so this may be is this going to be mockingbird heresy if we talk about uh, – <laughs> I joke about that a little bit. Well, no, I think that that's true. I mean, here, here's the thing. I think that I, I, there's a New Testament scholar, I forget, Jonah, something. I forget. Somebody qu- quoted him on Facebook the other day, and he said um, he was sort of, you know, like he was sort of uh, parrying off of the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Catechism. And the quote was, the chief end of man is, is to, to be loved by God. God enjoy well, the Westminster Catechism is, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. His, Jonas, Jonas's thing was, the chief end of man is to be loved by God. Hmm. And I think that is true. And, and I think that, you know, that, that it's own, true love comes out of knowing you're the beloved. You know, that it's, it's, it's something that, you know, this is why childhood trauma is so difficult to overcome, right? Because right. in the time you need to pure receptivity so you can give love. Right. So, yeah, I don't, I think that like that actually is, the end of, you know, J- Jonathan Edwards wrote that treatise, right? On the end of all things. Like, they, right. I mean, that is, love is the telos of all things. Right. No, and I think, um, you know, that's Thomas Aquinas' translation of, uh, you know, faith made complete by love. Or, right. You know, uh, the idea of faith uh, is the telos of love. I, I agree with that. I, I think, though, to me, uh, and again, I think he moves beyond what we've both said about Hollick is he he seems to just transcend some of the um, you know silos that a lot of contemporary Christians are stuck in. And he and I think you said it. Uh, you and I were talking on the phone about it. About he may be the most profound um, missional theologian. Yeah, he's the missiologist for for the West. I mean, I think he is the one that understands most deeply that I've read in a while the the current the intellectual just spiritual existential philosophical currents moving around and secularizing western culture like I, I you know I, I just think he's read the right thinkers <laughs> uh, he's ingested them like both inside the church and outside the church I think that he's a psychotherapist and yeah. so and I think that you know if the fourth century fathers were writing in in Neoplatonic categories because that was intellectually the cross current right. that was that was the lingua franca. Today, psychology is by and large the lingua franca, yeah. uh, you know, that yeah. we exist in and that we self understand ourselves. And he's, you know, he's a psychoanalyst uh, and a priest. And I, I just think so much about him 
is right. And, and when I see people like, quote, you know, the Benedict Option and some of these other movements, I think that, you know, I understand the sentiment. So I just think, I, I mean, I, I might write something, I want to call it the Zacchaeus Option, which is what I get out of Halleck. And I think Halleck's, because he talks in his book, Patience Forgot About, feeling called to those who um, remain far off, uh, right. like Zacchaeus. And I, I just think Halleck is, is, is excellent. I, I, I mean, there's so much about him that is the right tone and the right way to think through theology for a culture that faces more and more folks who are outside the church and religious life. Well, yeah, and I think that for me, you know, it, in some levels, he helps make sense of what's been a lot of my journey as a Christian. For instance, uh, you know, I was reared, and I'm thankful for growing up in evangelical Christianity and learning what I did and and learning the Bible like I like I did. But it makes no sense to me. It's totally incoherent from the kind of uh, Bible Christianity I was raised in. That 75 percent of evangelicals are against letting Syrian refugees in the country. The majority, vast majority of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. That's totally contrary to the spirit of Christianity that I was reared in, where it was a faith that worked itself out in love, and that the chief way you demonstrated that you had found Christ and that he had saved you from your sins was how you loved each other and how you, you know, you love God and love yourself, but how you loved your neighbor. And that there was a sense where uh, I was around people who really took really believed the Bible seriously. So when they said they're supposed to give up their coat for someone who needed one, they they did it. They spent their whole life that orientation. And so to me, part of what I think in among conservative Christians is there's this deficiency of love in their theology of faith. Whatever their doctrinal, whether it's a pure experiential, you know, Jesus and me, there's a there's a there's a deficiency of really the understanding of the way grace needs to change one towards love. Among liberal Christianity, I mean, <clears throat> you're, you know, the the love is kind of sentiment, it's sentimentality, mm-hmm. and as soon as you, as soon as something doesn't go right, they'll crush you, or the kind of the back deals with, with you know, the things that we've seen politically that have happened, whatever the particular cause is, they will do whatever they can to win, and so I mean, the apps, you know, I, I've experienced the lack of an often total Christian charity. There would be kind of a feeling. There'd be hugging, which I hated. You know, they'd everybody <laughs> each other. I like real hugging, but it would just, oh, it's so good to see you. Oh my, you know, and then, you know, smile to at your face all the time. They want to take your place. Yeah, I think also one of the things that I appreciate about Halleck is, I think that there's some of the inability of the church to love the the other right there is is seeing them as really othering them and he, he's got this great passage where he says this that um we hear and read about the declining number of believers in our cultural space but the assertion repeated ad nauseum is only valid if the term believer is wrongly applied solely to people who are at home in one of the traditional forms of religion. Moreover, the numbers of convinced atheists are also declining. But there are growing numbers of seekers, people on a journey. And isn't indeed, isn't indeed Abraham the father of the faith who sets off again and again on a journey? And he set out not knowing where he was going, Scripture says. Who is the father of just such a faith? Faith on a journey, faith as a journey. Abraham set off up the steep path of faithfulness and obedience. And yet he never, it would seem 
complete, completely abandoned the hope that the word of God that he had heard and which rightly seemed to him incomprehensible and absurd would not be his last word. He did not abandon the hope that God would return for him his son, that God himself would provide the lamb for a burnt offering. And the Lord did indeed speak to him and again. He talks about this sort of uh, the death of God in our culture mm-hmm. and the death and resurrection of Christ and sort of maybe the, 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 the perceived death of God in secularity is actually not the final word, but there is an Easter moment that it will give way to in which people that are on the journey and people that are in the church, both objects of the divine love, will find there's more commonality on their path than they imagined. Yeah. I, I think this is also related to something we talked about uh, no, I, I don't know how many podcasts to go, but our, could have been more than one hundred and two. <laughs> but uh, do we? Is our faith in our faith, or do we? Are is our faith in the work of Christ? Right, right. Uh, and I think part of the relationship between faith and love. I think he says something here. One doesn't become a Christian by believing that God is, but by believing that God is love. Yeah, he has another phrase that I find like so compelling, um, where he basically says. Something to the extent that he, he's he's quoting he's comparing the what does it mean to say that God exists and basically he says that the closest thing he can say or to the fact that God exists he says I know of no better translation of the statement God exists than the phrase love makes sense yeah the place for verifying those statements is not the classroom of the old metaphysics which both Kant and Kierkegaard let us out of, each of them through different doors. But life itself, a positive answer to that dual question cannot be proved, only demonstrated. It can only be indicated and corroborated through our own lives. We're talking about God's existence and, and divine love. I just think that's great. I let love make sense. I, I mean, that that's incredibly helpful. And the stuff he does also in the opening of the book where he, he has an interesting discussion of Kierkegaard and parenthetically Kant, but more Kierkegaard, which I think is fabulous. Yeah. I also like he says at one point he's a theophile, not a not a theologian. theologian. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. He says because I uh, the, the difference for him is the same difference between a, uh, a sophist or sophist and a philosopher. A uh, philosopher knows what he doesn't know, and a theologian yeah, he says I, I know more of what I don't know than what I do yeah. know. You know, it, it's interesting to me. I I had a conversation recently um, with uh, the. the ever-present and ever-growing, I'm spiritual but not religious uh, person. And it really, I mean, this person had had a very interesting life, and uh, there were some good reasons why this person was a little sour on the faith, given some of the things that had happened earlier in her life. And, you know, I tend to go a couple down a couple different tracks when I'm talking to people like this. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we were talking about social issues, agreeing upon those and different critical things. And uh, the person would say, well, you believe in God. You, you really believe in God? I go, uh, yeah, I, that, I do. And uh, the person said, I don't. I said, well, well, all right, that's okay. But what was interesting was that she said, I believe in something. Hmm. And I go, well, well, what is that? And she, and she goes, I don't, I don't know what it is because I had brought up of it. You know, to me, being a purely kind of mechanistic materialist doesn't work for me. And she goes, I wish I could be that, but I can't. And you no, know, I... I was reading this passage in Halleck, um, uh, and it dawned, that conversation dawned on me. And I think for a lot of people who, who say that they're religious, not religious, but they're spiritual, I think they're looking for something to love. I think that, I think 
it might be a whole different way to approach those folks in terms of they want to love something bigger than themselves. I, I, at least let's give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, I'm speaking in gross generalizations. But I've, I've been around a lot of kind of interesting, sincere people who care about things and not just about themselves who I think what they might be looking for, they have trouble believing in God for whatever reason. And most of the time it's not intellectually sound why they don't believe in God. But then often the reason we believe in God is not intellectually sound. So, I, I mean, I don't – I'm usually gentle on them about those things. But it struck me that um, this person was looking for something to love. Yeah, you know – I, I just saw this video on Facebook of this guy who raised his daughter in a gorilla reserve. and As a gorilla? Yeah. Well, she, like, I mean, they were, they were a human family. They, they were, and, they, and then they, they released these girls back into the wild out of captivity. And then they went, and she was like nine or something when they released them back to the wild. And then at like 19 or, or 20s or something, she and her dad went and found these same gorillas in the wild and they recognized not just him but her, and they even treated her more gently, like they were playing with both of them. But you could t- they could tell she was a female, a little more, you know, a little more slight in frame. And the way that the connection between these humans and the primates, like, and you could see the connection of love. I mean, there was more; they had more in common than they did in distinction. By the way, I'm going. This is a, I'm about to do something I usually do in these conversations. Uh, they never show you the films where the animals, when they reunion the reunions with the humans, where they rip the humans from shred to shred. They show you the crocodile hunter that guy died. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, they have this heartwarming. You know, they see the cheetah coming up and recognize him jumping on him, but they don't show the one where. You know, a few years later, he's found having in the cage. But I, I don't – it's a beautiful story. I actually saw it on YouTube too. But some of that too is also like you understand – like I mean there's a connection once that's made. No. That, you, that is, is – and, and there is something – you know, this is sort of like Hale talks about Teilhard de Chardin, like the, the, the yearning of creation to be taken up in love. And I think that that's – and then you think like to love is to suffer, right? Once you are bound up with – the, once the object of your love is a finite being, your own being is bound up with their fragility. And there's this great line in Halleck. It uh, says, God is dead. That sentence uttered at the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years. Maybe it was only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing something of God's message to us. A God who has not endured death is not truly living. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter. Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith, of our communication with God, who is concealed and returns again to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal word to speak to them once more. And I think there's something about if God is, there is the capacity of God to experience death might be the ultimate expression of the reality that God is love. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, this past Sunday, I, I taught, I preached on the, uh, Luke five, the call of Peter. And, um, and I've probably given hundred talk on that. I used to use that a lot with kids and still do. But, um, this idea that in Mark's gospel, not only are the fishermen having a bad day, but Jesus is having a bad day because the crowd keeps pushing them. That's why he ends up in the boats. You know, if he ends up in a boat because the crowd keeps pushing him to the water. And in Mark's gospel, uh, the crowd is always kind of an, 
you know, menacing kind of thing. Now that that that's that's not in Luke's gospel, but it it struck me that uh, Peter and and Jesus met when they were both having maybe not a great day, <laughs> and that uh, and that of course Jesus that was not Jesus had a lot of bad days in front of him, but that akin to what you just said, um, Jesus took bad days with him into the Godhead. Yeah, you know, I mean, we 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 you know we. We get dramatic about the cross and suffering, but frustration, bad days, disappointment, misunderstanding, all those human – the things that really isolate us and some levels of things that keep us away from love are the things we experience when love disappoints us and we don't get the love we, we need or the love we want. That, that, was, that was a daily occurrence for Jesus. Jesus understands uh, what it means to uh, – not be loved in return the way that he was loving. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking about Sunday in my sermon about like uh, the nature of the incarnation. How we walk around historic parts of America, like the Northeast, and it, but, you know, it's in the South. You have some too. I guess like you know, George Washington stayed here, right. Washington. Like, and there's the same. I see it here in Langhorn. I mean, there are signs like that. And and there's the sense that which this place is different because the father of the country. Was here and the, the, the people still kind of commemorate that. Right. Is, right. I think the incarnation is like that. It's like the, over the parts of our lives that seem most bereft of love sometimes, and feel like the part where we're most disconnected from human flourishing, where it's it, love doesn't seem like it makes sense. It's like there's the sign: the King of the Universe stayed here, like hallowed this moment, right. not just the high points but the low points. And so yeah. that's why I think our whole life. Good and bad can be, uh, it can be a vessel and receptor for love. Yeah, you know, one other thing I think there's many dimensions to, it, but one other great idea of having love take precedence over faith, and I put faith in the in the in the brackets, is I, you know, um, no one has theology right. I mean, it, it was interesting. I was John Piper. Especially John Piper, but Joel Osteen. Oh, even more so. You're just you're on a roll here. Uh, but the idea that I was was following this online heresy debate among some conservative evangelicals, and they're talking about hunting, you know, looking hunting for heretics. And I, I finally couldn't resist. I said, you know, most evangelicals every time they look in the mirror, they're finding a heretic. Uh, and the part of the problem is that you know we all we all I think forget how limited we are on are really what we understand. I mean, I think there are certain, you know, you can't renegotiate the foundation of the faith, you know, who Christ is and what the Trinity is. But having said that, uh, almost everybody's Christology and everyone's Trinitarian theology, if you get them to explain it, they are going to say something that has some semblance to some historical heresy. In, in the beginning of the Christian faith, Schleiermacher is trying to say, what's the essence of Christianity? He's like, well, it can't be knowledge. Because if that was the case, then theologians would be, be the best Christians. And everyone knows that's absurd. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's uh, that's so funny. I just uh, had you know, I just had 50 uh, Princeton stories come to my head with them, but we'll go on. But I think if, if love takes precedence, you know, I think uh, love covers a multitude of sins. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's like Dante in uh, – uh, his, um, his kind of spiritual memoir, My New Life, uh, Vita Nova. Um, 
that the story, and of course, uh, we find this Beatrice becomes uh, a central character in uh, his great work, The Divine Comedy. But he he shares that as a young boy, he was so taken by Beatrice. And then he was a young boy, maybe pre-teen or early teen, and he sees this, I think he sees this girl in the town, or I don't remember it exactly, or going to mass. And he's just totally, utterly in love with this person. And he vowed, as he got older, that he vowed to try to live the way he felt that day. He says, because anyone could have harmed me and I would have forgiven them. Anyone could have asked anything of me and I would have given to them because love had totally changed my heart. And he goes, and it's interesting. I mean, he never, Beatrice ends up marrying someone else. She dies relatively young in childbirth. But it is this idea of this love that what ultimately leads him uh, in paradise. And I think, um, I do think um, love rescues us and love leads us. Yeah, and I think, you know, go back to that thing that Halleck said that, you know, to say God exists really might mean to say that love makes sense. And I wonder if to have faith means to have faith in the fact that love makes sense, even though it, it seems counterintuitive. And maybe that's the key to relationships, human and divine, like this trust that love makes sense. Yeah. You know, I think we talk about the problem of evil, but from a philosophical perspective, the existence of love is an equal problem. Or, or some, a mystery, at least. <laughs> 